0: Matty told Hattie about things she saw, two big horns and a woolly jaw, woolly bully, woolly bully for you stout yeoman, this month, this, this week, this, this, this season, we are being sponsored by bunnyslippers.com and their Highland Cow Woolly Bully slippers. It doesn't say Woolly Bully on the website. It's just what I am saying because I've had that song stuck in my head since I got these comfortable comfortable wool slippers that I've been strolling around the studio with. Go to bunnyslippers.com, check them out yourself. Woolly Bully, that's not the name. Highland Cow slippers, Highland Cow slippers. Ooh, they're so soft and they're so fuzzy. And probably the next convention that I'll be at, I'll throw a pair out in the audience for everyone. Wooly Bully Slippers from BunnySlippers.com. And you know what? I can't talk about BunnySlippers.com without talking about my super cool greasy Tony's t shirt. It's a three quarter length sleeve shirt. I- I'm just talking about it because I love this shirt. Uh, they don't expect me to talk about it. I just love dressing like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. It's, uh, I don't know. He's my, he's my patronus, I guess one would say. All right. You know what we're talking about this week? We're not talking about anything this week. We're listening, people. We're listening. We're listening to Jules Verne. It's his, it's his birth month this month. Uh, and we're going to be covering... Uh, we're going to be talking about the Antarctic mystery. Wa-ha-ha. Yes, the Antarctic mystery where the Antarctic is more broken than my various accents that I do throughout the intro to this show. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. spooky dookie. And, uh, hey, just something that's out there, if you are someone who likes the show and wants to help out the show, why not go to PGTTCM.com and go to the donate option, help the show, help the show grow, help repair the equipment, help me help other podcasters get off the ground as I'm doing with Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Zach Ferguson from Articulate Warbling. If you like either of those, why not help out the show and help them out as well? And also, I'm going to be trying to come up with a larger show, a larger format, something that I wanted People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos to be to begin with. Well, here's some Jules Verne and enough of me talking. Let's go.
1: An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, Chapter 20. Part three, Unmerciful Disaster. Moreover, there would be danger in sending out our only boat on a voyage of discovery, as the current might carry it too far, or it might not find us again in the same place. And indeed, if the iceberg happened to get loose at the bottom, and to resume its interrupted drift, what would become of the men in the boat? The drawback was that the boat was too small to carry us all, with the necessary provisions. Now, of the seniors, there remained ten men, counting Dirk Peters. Of the new men, there were thirteen, twenty-three in all. The largest number our boat could hold was from eleven to twelve persons. Then eleven of us, indicated by lot, would have to remain on this island of ice. And what would become of them? With regard to this, hurley made a sound observation. After all, he said, I don't know that those who would embark would be better off than those who remained. I am so doubtful of the result that I would willingly give up my place to anyone who wanted it. Perhaps the boatswain was right, but in my own mind, when I asked that the boat might be utilized, it was for the purpose of reconnoitering the iceberg. We finally decided to arrange everything with a view to wintering out, even were our ice mountain again to drift. "'We may be sure that will be agreed to by our men,' declared Hurley-girley. What is necessary must be done,' replied the mate, "'and to-day we must set to work.' "'That was a sad day on which we began our preparations.' Endicott the cook was the only man who submitted without murmuring. "'As a negro who cares little about the future, "'shallow and frivolous like all his race, "'he resigned himself easily to his fate, "'and that is, perhaps, true philosophy.' Besides, when it came to the question of cooking, it mattered very little to him whether it was here or there, so long as his stoves were set up somewhere. So he said to his friend the mate, with his broad, negro smile, Luckily my kitchen did not go off with the schooner, and you shall see, hurley if I do not make up dishes just as good as on board the Halbrane, so long as provisions don't grow scarce, of course. Well, they will not be wanting for some time to come, "'replied the boatswain, "'We need not fear hunger, but cold, "'such cold as would reduce you to an icicle "'the minute you cease to warm your feet. "'Cold that makes your skin crack and your skull split, "'even if we had some hundreds of tons of coal. "'But, all things being well calculated, "'there is only just what will do to boil this large kettle.' "'And that is sacred,' cried Endicott, "'touching is forbidden, the kitchen before all. And that is the reason why it never strikes you to pity yourself, you old nigger. You can always make sure of keeping your feet warm at your oven. What would you have, boatswain? You are a first-rate cook, or are you not? When you are, you take advantage of it. But I will remember to keep you a little place before my stove. That's good, that's good, Endicott. Each one shall have his turn. There is no privilege even for a boatswain. On the whole, it is better not to have fear famine. One can fight against the cold. We shall dig holes in the iceberg and cuddle ourselves up there. And why should we not have a general dwelling-room? We could make a cave for ourselves with pickaxes. I have heard tell that ice preserves heat. Well, let it preserve ours, and that is all I ask of it. The hour had come for us to return to the camp and to seek our sleeping-places. Dirk Peters alone refused to be relieved of his duty as watchman of the boat and nobody thought of disputing the post with him. Captain Guy and West did not enter the tents until they had made certain that Hearn and his companions had gone to their usual place of rest. I came back likewise and went to bed. I could not tell how long I had been sleeping, nor what time it was, when I found myself rolling on the ground after a violent shock. What could be happening? Was it another capsize of the iceberg? We were all up in a second, then outside the tents in the full light of a night in the polar regions. A second floating mass of enormous size had just struck our iceberg, which had hoisted the anchor, as the sailors say, and was drifting towards the south. An unhoped-for change in the situation had taken place. What were to be the consequences of our being no longer cast away at that place? The current was now carrying us in the direction of the pole, THE FIRST FEELING OF JOY INSPIRED BY THIS CONVICTION WAS, HOWEVER, SUCCEEDED BY ALL THE TERRORS OF THE UNKNOWN. AND WHAT AN UNKNOWN! Dirk Peters was only entirely rejoiced that we had resumed the route, which he believed would lead us to the discovery of traces of his poor Pym. Far other ideas occupied the minds of his companions. Captain Len Guy no longer entertained any hope of rescuing his countrymen, and having reached the condition of despair, he was bound by his duty to take his crew back to the north, so as to clear the Antarctic Circle, while the season rendered it possible to do so. And we were being carried away towards the south. Naturally enough, we were all deeply impressed by the fearfulness of our position, which may be summed up in a few words. We were no longer cast away with a possible ship, but the tenants of a floating iceberg, with no hope but that our monster tenement "'might encounter one of the whaling ships "'whose business in the deep waters "'lies between the Orkneys, New Georgia, "'and the Sandwich Islands. "'A quantity of things had been thrown into the ice "'by the collision which had set our iceberg afloat, "'but these were chiefly articles belonging to the Halbrane. "'Owing to the precaution that had been taken on the previous day, "'when the cargo was stowed away in the clefts, "'it had been only slightly damaged. "'What would become of us?' Had all our reserves been swallowed up in that grim encounter? Now, the two icebergs formed but one, which was travelling south at the rate of two miles an hour. At this rate, thirty hours would suffice to bring us to the point of the axes at which the terrestrial meridians unite. Did the current which was carrying us along pass on to the pole itself, or was there any land which might arrest our progress? This was another question, and I discussed it with the boatswain. "'Nobody knows, Mr. Jorling,' was hurley reply. "'If the current goes to the pole, we shall go there, and if it doesn't, we shan't. An iceberg isn't a ship, and it has neither sails nor helm. It goes as the drift takes it.' "'That's true, boatswain, and therefore I had the idea that if two or three of us were to embark in the boat—' "'Ah, oh, you still hold to your notion of the boat?' certainly for if there is land somewhere is it not possible that the people of the jane have come upon it mr jeorling at four thousand miles from Salal island who knows bo'sun that may be but allow me to say that your argument will be reasonable when the land comes in sight if ever it does so our captain will see what ought to be done and he will remember that time presses we cannot delay in these waters and after all "'The one thing of real importance to us is to get out of the polar circle before the winter makes it impassable.' "'There was good sense in Hurliguerli's words. I could not deny the fact. "'During that day the greater part of the cargo was placed in the interior of a vast cave-like fissure in the side of the iceberg, "'where, even in the case of a second collision, casks and barrels would be in safety.' Our men then assisted Endicott to set up his cooking stove between two blocks, so that it was firmly fixed, and they heaped up a great mass of coals close to it. No murmurs, no recriminations, disturbed these labors. It was evident that silence was deliberately maintained. The crew obeyed the captain and West, because they gave no orders, but such as were of urgent necessity. But afterwards would these men allow the authority of their leaders to be uncontested? How long would the recruits from the Falklands, who were already exasperated by the disasters of our enterprise, resist their desire to seize upon the boat and escape? I did not think they would make the attempt, however, so long as our iceberg should continue to drift, for the boat could not outstrip its progress. But if it were to run aground once more, to strike upon the coast of an island or a continent, What would not these unfortunate creatures do to escape the horrors of wintering under such conditions? In the afternoon, during the hour of rest allowed to the crew, I had a second conversation with Dirk Peters. I had taken my customary seat at the top of the iceberg, and had occupied it for half an hour, being, as may be supposed, deep in thought, when I saw the half-breed coming quickly up the slope. We had exchanged hardly a dozen words since the iceberg had begun to move again, When Dirk Peters came up to me, he did not address me at first, and was so intent on his thoughts that I was not quite sure he saw me. At length he leaned back against an ice-block and spoke. "'Mr. Jorling,' he said, "'you remember in your cabin in the Halbrane "'I told you the affair of the Grampus?' "'I remembered well. "'I told you that Parker's name was not Parker, "'that it was Holt, and that he was Ned Holt's brother. "'I know Dirk Peters.' I replied. But why do you refer to that sad story again? Why, Mr. Jorling, have not—have you never said anything to anybody? Not to anybody, I protested. How could you suppose I should be so ill-advised, so imprudent, as to divulge your secret? A secret which ought never to pass our lips. A dead secret. Dead, yes, dead. And yet, understand me, it seems to me that among the crew something is known." I instantly recalled to mind what the boatswain had told me concerning a certain conversation in which he had overheard Hearn prompting Martin Holt to ask the half-breed what were the circumstances of his brother's death on board the Grampus. Had a portion of the secret got out, or was this apprehension on the part of Dirk Peters purely imaginary? "'Explain yourself,' I said. "'Understand me, Mr. Jorling. I'm a bad hand at explaining. Yes, yesterday I have—' I have thought of nothing else since Martin Holt took me aside, far from the others, and told me that he wished to speak to me. Of the Grampus? Of the Grampus, yes, and of his brother Ned Holt. For the first time he uttered that name before me, and yet we have sailed together for nearly three months. The half-breed's voice was so changed that I could hardly hear him. It seemed to me, he resumed, that in Martin Holt's mind—no, I was not mistaken— There was something like a suspicion. But tell me what he said. Tell me exactly what he asked you. What is it? I felt sure that the question put by Martin Holt, whatsoever its bearing, had been inspired by Hearn. Nevertheless, as I considered it well, that the half-breed should know nothing of the sealing-master's disquieting and inexplicable intervention in this tragic affair, I decided upon concealing it from him. He asked me, Dirk Peters replied, Did I not remember Ned Holt of the Grampus, and whether he had perished in the fight with the mutineers or in the shipwreck, whether he was one of the men who had been abandoned with Captain Bernard? In short, he asked me if I could tell him how his brother died. Ah, how! No idea could be conveyed of the horror with which the half-breed uttered words which revealed a profound loathing of himself and what answer did you make to Martin Holt? None, none. You should have said that Ned Holt perished in the wreck of the brig. I could not, understand me, I could not, that two brothers are so like each other. In Martin Holt I seemed to see Ned Holt. I was afraid. I got away from him. The half-breed drew himself up with a sudden movement, and I sat thinking, leaning my head on my hands. These tardy questions of Holt's respecting his brother, were put, I had no doubt whatsoever, at the instigation of Hearn. But what was his motive? And was it at the Falklands that he discovered the secret of Dirk Peters? I had not breathed the word on the subject to anyone. To the second question, no answer suggested itself. The first involved a serious issue. Did the sealing master merely desire to gratify his enmity against Dirk Peters? the only one of the Falkland sailors who had always taken the side of Captain Guy, and who had prevented the seizure of the boat by Hearn and his companions, did he hope, by arousing the wrath and vengeance of Martin Holt, to detach the sailing-master from his allegiance, and induce him to become an accomplice in Hearn's own designs? And in fact, when it was a question of sailing the boat in these seas, had he not imperative need of Martin Holt, One of the best seamen of the Halbrane, a man who would succeed where Hearn and his companions would fail, if they had only themselves to depend upon. I became lost in this labyrinth of hypotheses, and it must be admitted that its complications added largely to the troubles of an already complicated position. When I raised my eyes, Dirk Peters had disappeared. He had said what he came to say and he now knew that I had not betrayed his confidence. The customary precautions were taken for the night, no individual being allowed to remain outside the camp, with the exception of the half-breed, who was in charge of the boat. The following day was the 31st of January. I pushed back the canvas of the tent, which I shared with Captain Len Guy and West, respectively, as each succeeded the other on release from the alternate watch, very early and experienced a severe disappointment mist everywhere nay more than mist a thick yellow mouldy-smelling fog and more than this again the temperature had fallen sensibly this was probably a forewarning of the austral winter the summit of our ice mountain was lost in vapour in a fog which would not resolve itself into rain but would continue to muffle up the horizon bad luck said the boatswain FOR NOW, IF WE WERE TO PASS BY LAND, WE SHOULD NOT PERCEIVE IT. AND OUR DRIFT? MORE CONSIDERABLE THAN YESTERDAY, MR. Jorling. THE CAPTAIN HAS SOUNDED, AND HE MAKES A SPEED NO LESS THAN BETWEEN THREE AND FOUR MILES. AND WHAT DO YOU CONCLUDE FROM THIS? I CONCLUDE THAT WE MUST BE WITHIN A NARROWER SEA, SINCE THE CURRENT IS SO STRONG. I SHOULD NOT BE SURPRISED IF WE HAD LAND ON BOTH SIDES OF US WITHIN TEN OR FIFTEEN MILES. Then this would be a wide strait that cuts the Antarctic continent? Yes, our captain is of that opinion. And, holding that opinion, is he not going to make an attempt to reach one or other of the coasts of this strait? And how? With the boat. Risk the boat in the midst of this fog, exclaimed the boatswain, as he crossed his arms. What are you thinking of, Mr. Jorling? Can we cast anchor to wait for it? "'and all the chances would be that we should never see it again. "'Ah, if we only had the halbrane! "'But there was no longer a halbrane. "'In spite of the difficulty of the ascent through the half-condensed vapour, "'I climbed to the top of the iceberg. "'But when I had gained that eminence, "'I strove in vain to pierce the impenetrable grey mantle "'in which the waters were wrapped. "'I remained there, hustled by the northeast wind.' which was beginning to blow freshly, and might perhaps rend the fog asunder. But no, fresh vapours accumulated around our floating refuge, driven up by the immense ventilation of the open sea. Under the double action of the atmospheric and Antarctic currents, we drifted more and more rapidly, and I perceived a sort of shudder pass throughout the vast bulk of the iceberg. Then it was that I felt myself under the dominion of a sort of hallucination, one of those hallucinations which must have troubled the mind of Arthur Pym. It seemed to me that I was losing myself in this extraordinary personality. At last I was beholding all that he had seen. Was not that impenetrable mist, the curtain of vapours, which he had seen in his delirium? I peered into it, seeking for those luminous rays which had streaked the sky from east to west. I sought it in its depths for that limitless cataract rolling in silence from the height of some immense rampart, lost in the vastness of the zenith. I sought for the awful white giant of the South Pole. At length reason resumed her sway. This visionary madness, intoxicating while it lasted, passed off by degrees, and I descended the slope to our camp. The whole day passed without a change, The fog never once lifted to give us a glimpse outside of its muffling folds, and if the iceberg, which had travelled forty miles since the previous day, had passed by the extremity of the axis of the earth, we should never know it. End of chapter 20, part 3 An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne Chapter 21 Amid the Mists so, this was the sum of all our efforts, trials, and disappointments. Not to speak of the destruction of the Halbrane. the expedition had already cost nine lives. From thirty-two men who embarked on the schooner, our number was reduced to twenty-three. How low was that figure yet to fall? Between the South Pole and Antarctic Circle lay twenty degrees, and those would have to be cleared in a month or six weeks at the most. If not, the iceberg barrier would be reformed and closed up. As for wintering in that part of the Antarctic Circle, not a man of us could have survived it. Besides, we had lost all hope of rescuing the survivors of the Jane, and the sole desire of the crew was to escape as quickly as possible from the awful solitudes of the south. Our drift, which had been south, down to the pole, was now north, and, if that direction should continue... "'perhaps we might be favoured with such good fortune "'as would make up for all the evil that had befallen us. "'In any case there was nothing for it but, in familiar phrase, to let ourselves go. "'The mist did not lift during the end 3rd and 4th February, "'and it would have been difficult to make out the rate of progress of our iceberg "'since it had passed the pole. "'Captain Len Guy, however, and West considered themselves safe in reckoning it at 250 miles.' The current did not seem to have diminished in speed or changed its course. It was now beyond a doubt that we were moving between two halves of a continent, one on the east, the other on the west, which formed the vast Antarctic region, and I thought it was a matter of great regret that we could not get aground on one or the other side of this vast strait, whose surface would presently be solidified by the coming of winter. When I expressed this sentiment to Captain Guy. "'He made me the only logical answer. "'What would you have, Mr. Jorling? "'We are powerless. "'There is nothing to be done, "'and the persistent fog is the worst part of our ill luck. "'I no longer know where we are. "'It is impossible to take an observation, "'and this befalls us, "'just as the sun is about to disappear for long months. "'Let me come back to the question of the boat,' said I. "'For the last time could we not with the boat?' go on a discovery cruise? Can you think of such a thing? That would be an imprudence I would not commit, even though the crew would allow me. I was on the point of exclaiming, And what if your brother and your countrymen have found refuge on some spot of the land that undoubtedly lies about us? But I restrained myself. Of what avail was it to reawaken our captain's grief? He too must have contemplated this eventuality. "'and he had not renounced his purpose of further search "'without being fully convinced of the folly of a last attempt. "'During those three days of fog I had not caught sight of Dirk Peters, "'or rather he had made no attempt to approach, "'but had remained inflexibly at his post by the boat. Martin Holt's question, respecting his brother Ned, "'seemed to indicate that his secret was known, at least in part, "'and the half-breed held himself more than ever aloof.' "'sleeping while the others watched, and watching in their time of sleep. "'I even wondered whether he regretted having confided in me, "'and fancied that he had aroused my repugnance by his sad story. "'If so, he was mistaken. "'I deeply pitied the poor half-breed. "'Nothing could exceed the melancholy monotony of the hours "'which we passed in the midst of a fog "'so thick that the wind could not lift its curtain.' The position of the iceberg could not be ascertained. It went with the current at a like speed, and had it been motionless, there would have been no appreciable difference for us, for the wind had fallen, at least so we supposed, and not a breath was stirring. The flame of a torch held up in the air did not flicker. The silence of space was broken only by the clangor of sea-birds, which came in muffled croaking tones through the stifling atmosphere of vapor. Petrels and albatross swept the top of the iceberg, where they kept a useless watch in their flight. In what direction were those swift-winged creatures, perhaps already driven towards the confines of the Arctic region, but the approach of winter, bound? We could not tell one day the bosun, who was determined to solve this question if possible, having mounted to the extreme top, not without risk of breaking his neck, came into such violent contact with a he branta a hesos, a sort of gigantic petrel measuring twelve feet with spread wings, that he was flung on his back. "Cursed the bird,' he said on his return to the camp, addressing the observation to me. "'I have had a narrow escape. A thump, and down I went, sprawling. I saved myself, I don't know how, for I was all but over the side. Those icebergs, you know, slip through one's fingers like water. I called out to the bird.' "'Can't you even look before you, you fool?' "'But what was the good of that? "'The big blunderer did not even beg my pardon.' "'In the afternoon of the same day "'our ears were assailed by a hideous braying from below. Hurley remarked that as there was no asses "'to treat us to the concert, "'it must have been given by penguins. "'Hitherto these countless dwellers in the polar regions "'had not thought proper to accompany us on our moving island.' We had not even seen one, either at the foot of the iceberg or on the drifting packs. There could be no doubt that they were there in thousands, for the music was unmistakably that of a multitude of performers. Now those birds, frequent by choice the edges of the coasts of islands and continents in high latitudes, or the ice-fields in their neighborhood, was not their presence an indication that land was near? "'I asked Captain Len Guy what he thought of the presence of these birds. "'I think what you think, Mr. Jorling,' he replied. "'Since we have been drifting, none of them have taken refuge on the iceberg, "'and here they are now in crowds. "'If we may judge by their deafening cries, from whence do they come? "'No doubt from land, which is probably near. "'Is this West's opinion?' "'Yes, Mr. Jorling, and you know he is not given to vain imaginations.' certainly not. And then another thing has struck both him and me, which has apparently escaped your attention. It is that the braying of the penguins is mingled with a sound, like the lowing of cattle. Listen, and you will readily distinguish it. I listened, and sure enough, the orchestra was more full than I had supposed. I hear the lowing plainly, I said. There are, then, seals and walruses also in the sea at the base. That is certain, Mr. Jorling, and I conclude from the fact that those animals, both birds and mammals, very rare since we left Salal Island, frequent the waters into which the currents have carried us. Of course, Captain, of course. Oh, what a misfortune it is that we should be surrounded by this impenetrable fog, which prevents us from getting down to the base of the iceberg. There, no doubt, we should discover whether there are seaweed drifts around us, "'If that be so, it would be another sign. "'Why not try, Captain?' "'No, no, Mr. Jorling, that might lead to falls, "'and I will not permit anybody to leave the camp. "'If land be there, I imagine our iceberg will strike it before long. "'And if it does not? "'If it does not, how are we to make it?' "'I thought to myself that the boat might very well be used in the latter case, "'but Captain Len Guy preferred to wait.' and perhaps this was the wiser course under our circumstances. At eight o'clock that evening, the half-condensed mist was so compact that it was difficult to walk through. The composition of the air seemed to be changed, as though it were passing into a solid state. It was not possible to discern whether the fog had any effect upon the compass. I knew the matter had been studied by meteorologists, and that they believed they may safely affirm "'that the needle is not affected by this condition of the atmosphere. "'I will add here that since we had left the south pole behind, "'no confidence could be placed in the indications of the compass. "'It had gone wild at the approach to the magnetic pole, "'to which we were no doubt on the way. "'Nothing could be known, therefore, concerning the course of the iceberg. "'The sun did not quite set below the horizon at this period.' yet the waters were wrapped in tolerably deep darkness at nine o'clock in the evening, when the muster of the crew took place. On this occasion, each man, as usual, answered to his name except Dirk Peters. The call was repeated in the loudest of Hurliguerly's stentorian tones. No reply. "'Has nobody seen Dirk Peters during the day?' inquired the captain. "'Nobody,' answered the boatswain. "'Can anything have happened to him? Don't be afraid.' cried the boatswain. Dirk Peters is in his element, and as much at his ease in the fog as a polar bear. He has got out of one bad scrape. He will get out of a second. I let hurley have his say, knowing well why the half-breed kept out of the way. That night none of us, I am sure, could sleep. We were smothered in the tents for lack of oxygen, and we were all more or less under the influence of a strange sort of presentiment as though our fate were about to change, for better or worse, if indeed it could be worse. The night wore on without any alarm, and at six o'clock in the morning each of us came out to breathe a more wholesome air. The state of things was unchanged. The density of the fog was extraordinary. It was, however, found that the barometer had risen. Too quickly, it is true, for the rise to be serious." Presently, other signs of change became evident. The wind, which was growing colder, a south wind, since we had passed beyond the south pole, began to blow a full gale, and the noises from below were heard more distinctly through the space swept by the atmospheric currents. At nine o'clock, the iceberg doffed its cap of vapour quite suddenly, producing an indescribable transformation scene, which no fairy's wand could have accomplished in less time or with greater success. In a few moments the sky was clear to the extreme verge of the horizon, and the sea reappeared, illumined by the oblique rays of the sun, which now rose only a few degrees above it. A rolling swell of the waves bathed the base of our iceberg in white foam, as it drifted, together with a great multitude of floating mountains, under the double action of wind and current on a course inclining to the nor east Land! This cry came from the summit of the moving mountain, and Dirk Peters was revealed to our sight. Standing on the outermost block, his hands stretched towards the north. The half-breed was not mistaken. The land this time, yes, it was land. Its distant heights, of a blackish hue, rose within three or four miles of us eighty-six degrees, twelve minutes, south latitude, one hundred and fourteen degrees, seventeen minutes, east longitude. The iceberg was nearly four degrees beyond the Antarctic Pole, and from the western longitudes that our schooner had followed, tracing the course of the Jane, we had passed into the eastern longitudes. End of Chapter 21 AN ANTARCTIC MYSTERY BY Jules VERNE. CHAPTER 22. IN CAMP A little afternoon the iceberg was within a mile of the land. After dinner the crew climbed up to the topmost block on which Dirk Peters was stationed. On our approach the half-breed descended the opposite slope, and when I reached the top he was no longer to be seen. The land on the north evidently formed a continent or island of considerable extent. On the west there was a sharply projecting cape, surmounted by a sloping height which resembled an enormous seal's head on the side view. Then beyond that was a wide stretch of sea. On the east the land was prolonged out of sight. Each one of us took in the position. It depended on the current whether it would carry the iceberg into an eddy which might drive it on the coast, or continue to drift it towards the north which was the more admissible hypothesis. Captain Guy, West, hurley and I talked over the matter while the crew discussed it amongst themselves. Finally it was agreed that the current tended rather to carry the iceberg towards the northern point of land. "'After all,' said Captain Guy, "'if it is habitable during the months of the summer season, "'it does not look like being inhabited, "'since we cannot descry a human being on the shore.' Let us bear in mind, Captain, said I, that the iceberg is not calculated to attract attention as the Halbrain would have done. Evidently, Mr. Jorling and the natives, if there were any, would have been collected on the beach to see the Halbrain already. We must not conclude, Captain, because we do not see any natives. Certainly not, Mr. Jorling, but you will agree with me that the aspect of this land is very unlike that of Salal Island, when the Jane reached it. There is nothing here but desolation and barrenness. I acknowledge that. Barrenness and desolation, that is all. Nevertheless, I want to ask you whether it is your intention to go ashore, Captain. With the boat? With the boat. Should the current carry our iceberg away from the land? We have not an hour to lose, Mr. Jorling, and the delay of a few hours might condemn us to a cruel winter stay if we arrive too late at the iceberg barrier. "'And, considering the distance, we are not too soon,' observed West. "'I grant it,' I replied, still persisting, "'but to leave this land behind us without ever having set foot on it, "'without having made sure that it does not preserve the traces of an encampment "'if your brother, Captain, his companions—' "'Captain Guy shook his head. "'How could the castaways have supported life in this desolate region for several months? "'Besides, the British flag was hoisted on the summit of the iceberg.' and William Guy would have recognized it and come down to the shore, had he been living. No one, no one. At this moment, West, who had been observing certain points of approach, said, "'Let us wait a little before we come to a decision. In less than an hour we shall be able to decide. Our speed is slackening, it seems to me, and it is possible that an eddy may bring us obliquely to the coast.' "'That is my opinion, too,' Said the boatswain, and if our floating machine is not stationary, it is nearly so; it seems to be turning around. West and Hurliguerly were not mistaken for some reason or other. The iceberg was getting out of the course which it had followed continuously. A gyratory movement had succeeded to that of drifting, owing to the action of an eddy which set towards the coast. Besides, several ice-mountains in front of us had just run aground on the edge of the shore. It was then useless to discuss whether we should take to the boat or not. According as we approached, the desolation of the land became more and more apparent, and the prospect of enduring six months wintering there would have appalled the stoutest hearts. At five in the afternoon the iceberg plunged into a deep rift in the coast, ending in a long point on the right and there stuck fast. "'On shore! on shore!' burst from every man, like a single exclamation, and the men were already hurrying down the slope of the iceberg when West commanded, "'Wait for orders!' Some hesitation was shown, especially on the part of Hearn and several of his comrades. Then the instinct of discipline prevailed, and finally the whole crew ranged themselves around Captain Len Guy. It was not necessary to lower the boat, the iceberg being in contact with the point. The captain, the boatswain, and myself, preceding the others, were the first to quit the camp. Ours were the first human feet to tread this virgin and volcanic soil. We walked twenty minutes on rough land, strewn with rocks of igneous origin, solidified lava, dusty slag, and grey ashes, but without enough clay to grow even the hardiest plants. With some risk and difficulty, Captain Len Guy, the boatswain, and I succeeded in climbing the hill. This exploit occupied a whole hour. Although evening had come now, it brought no darkness in its train. From the top of the hill we could see over an extent of from thirty to forty miles, and this was what we saw. Behind us lay the open sea, laden with floating masses. A great number of these had recently heaped themselves up against the beach, and rendered it almost inaccessible. On the west was a strip of hilly land, which extended beyond our sight, and was washed on the east side by a boundless sea. It was evident that we had been carried by the drift through a strait. Ah, if only we had our halbrane! But our sole possession was a frail craft, barely capable of containing a dozen men, and we were twenty-three. There was nothing for it but to go down to the shore again, to carry the tents to the beach, and take measures in view of a winter sojourn under the terrible conditions imposed upon us by circumstances. On our return to the coast, the boatswain discovered several caverns in the gigantic cliffs, sufficiently spacious to house us all and afford storage for the cargo of the Halbrane. Whatever might be our ultimate decision, we could not do better than place our material and install ourselves in this opportune shelter. After we had reascended the slopes of the iceberg and reached our camp, Captain Len guy had the men mustered. The only missing man was Dirk Peters, who had decidedly isolated himself from the crew. There was nothing to fear from him, however. He would be the faithful against the mutinous, and under all circumstances we might count upon him. When the circle had been formed, Captain Len Guy spoke, without allowing any sign of discouragement to appear, and explained the position with the utmost frankness and lucidity, stating in the first place that it was absolutely necessary to lower the cargo to the coast and stow it away in one of the caverns. Concerning the vital question of food, he stated that the supply of flour, preserved meat and dried vegetables would suffice for the winter, however prolonged and on that of fuel he was satisfied that we should not want for coal, provided it was not wasted, and it would be possible to economize it, as the hibernating waifs might brave the cold of the polar zone under a covering of snow and a roof of ice. Was the captain's tone of security feigned? I did not think so, especially as West approved of what he said. A third question raised by Hearn remained and was well calculated to arouse jealousy and anger amongst the crew. It was the question of the use to be made of the only craft remaining to us. Ought the boat to be kept for the needs of our hibernation, or used to enable us to return to the iceberg barrier? Captain Guy would not pronounce upon this. He desired to postpone the decision for twenty-four or forty-eight hours. The boat, carrying the provisions necessary for such a voyage, could not accommodate more than eleven, or at the outside twelve men. If the departure of the boat were agreed to, then its passengers must be selected by lot. The captain proceeded to state that neither West, the boatswain, I nor he, would claim any privilege, but would submit to the fortune of the lot with all the others. Both Martin Holt and Hardy were perfectly capable of taking the boat to the fishing grounds, where the whalers would still be found." Then those to whom the lot should fall were not to forget their comrades left to winter on the 86th parallel, and were to send a ship to take them off at the return of summer. All this was said in a tone as calm as it was firm. I must do Captain Len Guy the justice to say that he rose to the occasion. When he had concluded, without any interruption even from Hearn, no one made a remark. There was indeed none to be made. "'since, in the given case, lots were to be drawn under conditions of perfect equality. "'The hour of rest having arrived, each man entered the camp, "'partook of the supper prepared by Endicott, "'and went to sleep for the last time under the tents. "'Dirk Peters had not reappeared, and I sought for him in vain. "'On the following day, the 7th of February, everybody set to work early with a will.' The boat was let down, with all due precaution, to the base of the iceberg, and drawn up by the men on a little sandy beach out of reach of the water. It was in perfectly good condition, and thoroughly serviceable. The boatswain then set to work on the former contents of the halbrane —furniture, bedding, sails, clothing, instruments, and utensils—stowed away in a cabin. These things would no longer be exposed to the knocking about and damage of the iceberg." The cases containing preserved food and the casks of spirits were rapidly carried ashore. I worked with the captain and West at this onerous task, and Dirk Peters also turned up and lent the valuable assistance of his great strength, but he did not utter a word to anyone. Our occupation, continual on the 8th and 9th and 10th February, and our task was finished in the afternoon of the 10th. The cargo was safely stowed in the interior of a large grotto, with access to it by a narrow opening. We were to inhabit the adjoining grotto, and Endicott set up his kitchen in the latter, on the advice of the bosun. Thus we should profit by the heat of the stove, which was to cook our food and warm the cavern during the long days, or rather the long nights, of the austral winter. During the process of housing and storing, I observed nothing to arouse suspicion in the bearing of Hearn and the Falklands men. Nevertheless, the half-breed was kept on guard at the boat, which might easily have been seized upon the beach. hurley who observed his comrades closely, appeared less anxious. On that same evening, Captain Len Guy, having reassembled his people, stated that the question should be discussed on the morrow, adding that, if it were decided in the affirmative, Lots should be drawn immediately. No reply was made. It was late and half-dark outside, for at this date the sun was on the edge of the horizon, and would very soon disappear below it. I had been asleep for some hours, when I was awakened by a great shouting at a short distance. I sprang up instantly and darted out of the cavern, simultaneously with the captain and West, who had been suddenly aroused from sleep. "'The boat! the boat!' cried West. The boat was no longer in its place, that place so jealously guarded by Dirk Peters. After they had pushed the boat into the sea, three men had got into it with bales and casks, while ten others strove to control the half-breed. Hearn was there, and Martin Holt also. The latter, it seemed to me, was not interfering. Those wretches then, intended to depart before the lots were drawn. They meant to forsake us. They had succeeded in surprising Dirk Peters, and they would have killed him had he not fought hard for his life. In the face of this mutiny, knowing our inferiority of numbers, and not knowing whether he might count on all the old crew, Captain Len Guy re-entered the cavern with West in order to procure arms. Hearn and his accomplices were armed. I was about to follow them when the following words arrested my steps. The half-breed, overpowered by numbers had been knocked down and at this moment martin holt in gratitude to the man who saved his life was rushing to his aid but hearn called out to him leave the fellow alone and come with us martin holt hesitated yes leave him alone i say leave dirk peters the assassin of your brother alone the assassin of my brother your brother killed on board the grampus killed by dirk peters yes "'Killed and eaten, eaten, eaten,' replied Hearn, "'who pronounced the hateful words with a kind of howl. "'And then, at a sign from Hearn, two of his comrades seized Martin Holt and dragged him into the boat. "'Hearn was instantly followed by all those "'whom he had induced to join in his criminal deed. "'At that moment Dirk Peter rose from the ground "'and sprang upon one of the Falkland men "'as he was in the act of stepping on the platform of the boat.' lifted him up bodily, hurled him round his head, and dashed his brains out against a rock. In an instant the half-breed fell, shot in the shoulder by a bullet from Hearn's pistol, and the boat was pushed off. Then Captain Len Guy and West came out of the cavern. The whole scene had passed in less than a minute, and ran down to the point which they reached together with the boatswain, Hardy, Francis, and Stern. The boat, which was drawn by the current, was already some distance off, and the tide was falling rapidly. West shouldered his gun and fired. A sailor dropped into the bottom of the boat. A second shot, fired by Len Guy, grazed Hearn's breast, and the ball was lost amongst the ice blocks at the moment when the boat disappeared behind the iceberg. The only thing for us to do was to cross to the other side of the point, the current would carry the wretches thither, no doubt, before it bore them northward. If they passed within range, and if a second shot should hit Hearn, either killing or wounding him, his companions might perhaps decide on coming back to us. A quarter of an hour elapsed. When the boat appeared at the other side of the point, it was so far off that our bullets could not reach it. Hearn had already had the sail set, and the boat impelled by wind and current jointly was soon no more than a white speck on the face of the waters, and speedily disappeared. End of chapter 22 An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne Chapter 23 Found at Last The question of our wintering on the land whereon we had been thrown was settled for us, but, after all, the situation was not changed for those among the nine now only remaining of the twenty-three, who should not have drawn the lot of departure. Who could speculate upon the chances of the whole nine? Might not all of them have drawn the lot of stay? And, when every chance was fully weighed, was that of those who had left us the best? To this question there could be no answer. When the boat had disappeared, Captain Guy and his companions retraced their steps towards the cavern in which we must live, for all the time during which we could not go out, in the dread darkness of the Antarctic winter. My first thought was of Dirk Peters, who, being wounded, could not follow us when we hurried to the other side of the point. On reaching the cavern I failed to find the half-breed. Was he severely wounded? Should we have to mourn the death of this man, who was as faithful to us as to his poor Pym? Let us search for him, Mr. Jorling, cried the boatswain we will go together said the captain dirk peters would never have forsaken us and we will not forsake him would he come back said i now that what he thought was known to him and me only has come out i informed my companions of the reason why the name of ned holt had been changed to that of parker in arthur pym's narrative and of the circumstances under which the half-breed had apprised me of the fact at the same time, I urged every consideration that might exculpate him, dwelling in particular upon the point that if the lot had fallen to Dirk Peters, he would have been the victim of the other's hunger. "'Dirk Peters confided this secret to you only,' inquired Captain Guy. "'To me only, Captain. And you have kept it?' "'Absolutely.' "'Then I cannot understand how it came to the knowledge of Hearn.' "'At first, I replied,' I thought Hearn might have talked in his sleep, and that it was by chance Martin Holt learned the secret. After reflection, however, I recalled to mind that when the half-breed related the scene on the grampus to me, he was in my cabin, and the side sash was raised. I have reason to think that the man at the wheel overheard our conversation. Now that man was Hearn, who, in order to hear it more clearly, let go the wheel so that the halbrane lurched. I remember, said west. I questioned the fellow sharply and sent him down into the hold. Well, then, captain, I resumed, it was from that day that Hearn made up to Martin Holt. Hurliguerly called my attention to the fact. Of course he did, said the boatswain, for Hearn, not being capable of managing the boat which he intended to seize, required a master hand like Holt. And so, I said, he kept on urging Holt to question the half-breed concerning his brother's fate. And you know how Holt came at last to learn the fearful truth. Martin Holt seemed to be stupefied by the revelation. The others dragged him away, and now he is with them. We were all agreed that things had happened as I supposed. And now the question was, did Dirk Peters, in his present state of mind, mean to absent himself? Would he consent to resume his place among us? We all left the cavern, and after an hour's search we came in sight of Dirk Peters, whose first impulse was to escape from us. At length, however, hurley and Francis came up with him. He stood still and made no resistance. I advanced and spoke to him. The others did the same. Captain Guy offered him his hand, which he took after a moment's hesitation. Then, without uttering a single word, He returned towards the beach. From that day, no allusion was ever made to the tragic story of the Grampus. Dirk Peter's wound proved to be slight. He merely wrapped a piece of sailcloth round the injured arm and went off to his work with entire unconcern. We made all the preparations in our power for a prolonged hibernation. Winter was threatening us. For some days past, the sun hardly showed at all through the mists. The temperature fell to thirty-six degrees and would rise no more, while the solar rays, casting shadows of endless length upon the soil, gave hardly any heat. The captain made us put on warm woolen clothes without waiting for the cold to become more severe. Icebergs, packs, streams, and drifts came in greater numbers from the south. Some of these struck and stayed upon the coast, which was already heaped up with ice. But the greater number disappeared in the direction of the northeast all these pieces said the boatswain, will go to the closing up of the iceberg wall if hearn and his lot of scoundrels are not ahead of them i imagine they will find the door shut and as they have no key to open it with i suppose you think boatswain, that our case is less desperate than theirs i do think so mr jeorling and i have always thought so if everything had been done as it was settled and the lot had fallen to me to go with the boat, I would have given up my turn to one of the others. After all, there is something in feeling dry ground under our feet. I don't wish the death of anybody, but if Hearn and his friends do not succeed in clearing the iceberg barrier, if they are doomed to pass the winter on the ice, reduced for food to a supply that will only last a few weeks, you know the fate that awaits them. Yes, a fate worse than ours.' And besides, said the boatswain, even supposing they do reach the Antarctic Circle, if the whalers have already left the fishing grounds, it is not a laden and overladen craft that will keep the sea until the Australian coasts are in sight. This was my opinion, and also that of the captain at West. During the following four days we completed the storage of the whole of our belongings, and made some excursions into the interior of the country, finding all barren, and not a trace that any landing had ever been made there. One day Captain Len Guy proposed that we should give a geographical name to the region whither the iceberg had carried us. It was named Halbrane Land, in memory of our schooner, and we called the strait that separated the two parts of the polar continent the Jane Sound. Then we took to shooting the penguins, which swarmed upon the rocks, and to capturing some of the amphibious animals which frequented the beach. We began to feel the want of fresh meat, and Endicott's cooking rendered seal and walrus flesh quite palatable. Besides, the fat of these creatures would serve at need to warm the cavern and feed the cooking stove. Our most formidable enemy would be the cold, and we must fight it by every means within our power. It remained to be seen whether the amphibia would not forsake halbrane land at the approach of winter, and seek a less rigorous climate in lower latitudes. Fortunately, there were hundreds of other animals, to secure our little company from hunger, and even from thirst at need. The beach was the home of numbers of galapagos, a kind of turtle, so called from an archipelago in the equinoctial sea. There also they abound, and mentioned by Arthur Pym as supplying food to the islanders, it will be remembered that Pym and Peters found three of these Galapagos in the native boat which carried them away from Zalal Island. The movement of these huge creatures is slow, heavy and waddling. They have thin necks two feet long, triangular snake-like heads, and can go without food for very long periods. Arthur Pym had compared the Antarctic turtles to dromedaries because, like those ruminants, They have a pouch just where the neck begins, which contains from two to three gallons of cold fresh water. He relates, before the scene of the lot drawing, that but for one of these turtles the shipwrecked crew of the Grampus must have died of hunger and thirst. If Pym is to be believed, some of the great turtles weigh from twelve to fifteen hundred pounds. Those of Halbrane land did not go beyond seven or eight hundred pounds, but their flesh was nonetheless savory. On the 19th of February, an incident occurred, an incident which those who acknowledge the intervention of Providence in human affairs will recognize as providential. It was eight o'clock in the morning. The weather was calm. The sky was tolerably clear. The thermometer stood at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. We were assembled in the cavern, with the exception of the bosun, waiting for our breakfast, which Endicott was preparing and were about to take our places at table, when we heard a call from outside. The voice was hurly-gurly's, and we hurried out. On seeing us he cried, Come, come, quickly! He was standing on a rock at the foot of the hillock above the beach in which Halbrane Land ended beyond the point, and his right hand was stretched out towards the sea. What is it? asked Captain Guy. A boat. Is the Halbrane's boat coming back? No, Captain, it is not. Then we perceived a boat, not to be mistaken for that of our schooner, in form or dimensions, drifting without oars or paddle, seemingly abandoned to the current. We had but one idea in common, to seize at any cost upon this derelict craft, which would, perhaps, prove our salvation. But how were we to reach it? How were we to get it to the point of Halbrane land?' While we were looking distractedly at the boat and at each other, there came a sudden splash at the end of the hillock, as though a body had fallen into the sea. It was Dirk Peters, who, having flung off his clothes, had sprung from the top of a rock and was swimming rapidly towards the boat before we made him out. We cheered him heartily. I never beheld anything like that swimming. He bounded through the waves like a porpoise and indeed he possessed the strength and swiftness of one. What might not be expected of such a man? In a few minutes the half-breed had swum several cables' lengths towards the boat in an oblique direction. We could only see his head like a black speck on the surface of the rolling waves. A period of suspense, of intense watching of the brave swimmer, succeeded. Surely, surely he would reach the boat. But must he not be carried away with it? Was it to be believed that even his great strength would enable him, swimming, to tow it to the beach? After all, why should there not be oars in the boat? said the boatswain. He has it! He has it! Hurrah! Dirk, hurrah! shouted hurly and Endicott echoed his exultant cheer. The half-breed had, in fact, reached the boat and raised himself alongside half out of the water. His big, strong hand grasped the side, and at the risk of causing the boat to capsize, he hoisted himself up to the side, stepped over it, and sat down to draw his breath. Almost instantly a shout reached our ears. It was uttered by Dirk Peters. What had he found? Paddles, it must be so, for we saw him seat himself in the front of the boat, and paddle with all his strength "'in striving to get out of the current. "'Come along,' said the captain, "'and, turning the base of the hillock, "'we all ran along the edge of the beach "'between the blackish stones that bestrew it. "'After some time, Wes stopped us. "'The boat had reached the shelter "'of a small projection at that place, "'and it was evident that it would be run ashore there. "'When it was within five or six cables' length, "'the eddy was helping it on. Jerk Peters let go the paddles, stooped forwards the after part of the boat and then raised himself holding up an inert body an agonised cry from captain len guy rent the air my brother my brother he is living he is living shouted dirk Peters a moment later the boat had touched the beach and captain len guy held his brother in his arms three of william guy's companions lay apparently lifeless at the bottom of the boat. And these four men were all that remained of the crew of the Jane. End of chapter 23
0: Thank you again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Remember, you can help out the show by going to p-g-t-t-c-m dot com. Follow the show notes. Follow the show on social media. Uh, Find us anywhere you catch your pods, at your podcatchers. And, yeah, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Just look for us there and look for us wherever you look for podcasts. Thank you again. Donate money. Help out the show. Buy a T-shirt. Send us a, you know, contact us. Get in touch. All right. Thank you again and have a great day.